0: Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon spoke to Simon Lancaster, a speech writer.
1: Simon spoke about his experience writing speeches for British politicians. He talked about the fundamental components of rhetoric that have existed across place and time. And he talked about how writing speeches is distinct in the business world.
0: It's a fascinating episode. We hope you enjoy it.
1: So Simon, really great to have you on Always Take Notes. Thank you for finding time uh, the day after the general election. How much sleep have you had? Um, I managed
2: two hours, which (laughs) I'm actually still... Pretty adrenaline, so um, I feel okay on it. I, I feel quite quite high. Actually.
1: You're still flying and yet to crash.
2: Yeah, yet to crash. But I, th- I think when I stick my head down tonight, it's going to be a big one. It, it could be it could be eleven hours, twelve hours. I reckon.
1: Goodness. Well, if you can if you can stay on form <laughs> for the next fifty minutes, that would be great. Yeah. So what I wanted to start with was this idea that the the kind of core components of speech writing, these rhetorical tools, that, it, that from from what you sent and and from watching it, that these appear to have existed for. Thousands thousands of years yeah. and to work cross-culturally and across language. Is that is that a correct analysis?
2: Yes, that's right. So my starting point is Aristotle's rhetoric, so the concepts of ethos, pathos, Logos, the ethos being the credibility of the speaker, pathos being the emotions of the audience and logos being the logic of the argument. And you can see why these would work and would not change across cultures, across time, because they actually tie into the way that the brain works. You know, we're forever looking at people, our instinctive brain makes snap judgments about whether we trust people or not. Our limbic system, you know, we'll get the emotions flowing if they get our emotions. And, and the, the logic bit is a bit of an optional extra, actually, as long as it sounds logical. The other two bits are there, i.e. we trust someone, we think they're a good person, they have ethos, we care about what they're saying. Anything they say will sound logical pretty much.
1: So what else sits in this essential toolkit? How many of these devices are there Oh my goodness!
2: (laughs) I mean, you know, there were absolutely hundreds of different rhetorical devices, and so and and I try to simplify because I think you can disappear up your own backside a little bit on on this kind of thing. But I'll just talk about things like repetition. You know, well, repetition, rhetorical repetition. You can do it like uh, Churchill did Mm. it. So the repetition can appear at the beginning of the sentence. Yeah, it can appear at the beginning of the sentence. So like, you know, um, we will fight on the beaches, we'll fight on the land and grounds, we'll fight on the fields and on the streets, or it could appear at the end of the sentence. And I think here there's a, you know, a Malcolm X speech springs to mind, you know, where it was like, you know, they, they sent us to fight in Korea they lied they sent us to fight in vietnam they lied hmm. you know and so the and the, the romans the ancient romans would would say that that was a different rhetorical device okay whether it appeared at the beginning of so you can disappear out your backside a bit yeah, on yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah. i simplify it and you know that that way people find it much more accessible uh, to use. and yeah i mean the, there are certain big ones so
1: you yeah, what are the talk me through the big ones then
2: yeah. Uh, the, the rule of three mm-hmm. um, is one that many people will already be familiar with, I'm sure. But like friends, Romans, countrymen, government of the people, by the people, for the people. Veni, vidi, vici, mm. ein Volk, ein Reich, ein Führer. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you get that all over the place. That kind of runs through everything. So then you can put that in breathless sentences. You can have three breathless
1: sentences. So like... Um, and, you, and the actual breathlessness is a trope itself it has power because it yeah you mentioned this in your speech that in your ted talk that it makes it's it's the sound of emotion
2: yeah well it makes you sound as if you're anxious so you you know like you're distressed this is the authentic sound of fear hyperventilating you know so you see this if someone's interviewed after there's just been a a bomb go off or a terrorist attack or something like that and people are interviewed and they're like "Oh, oh god it was crazy There were people running and then there was a bang, you know, and they're naturally speaking like that. So as a speechwriter, you're trying to kind of imitate the authentic sound Mm. of distress. And it makes such an effect on audiences when they see speakers do this. So rather than the monotone, blah, 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 you know, then instead you've got broken homes, failing schools, sink estates, and it just grabs people's attention. Okay,
1: so rule of three. What what else the big...
2: Yeah, the breathless sentences and then repetition, which we've talked about. And then you have contrasts, yeah. you know, which can be opposites or points of uh, comparison. You know, like, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Okay. The state is your servant, not your master. So kind of sentences. And you, you, made,
1: you made the argument again in your TED talk that that works because the linguistic balance tricks us into thinking it's a balanced argument.
2: Yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah, yeah we're, we're very easily fooled. I mean, this is something that you see on Facebook. If anyone, any, if you have friends, and I'm sure you do, Simon, because yeah. we, we, we all do, but you have friends who post those kind of um, inspirational porn shots <laughs> on Facebook where you get like a sunset and there'll be some, something something quasi-meaningful, ins- philosophical. Yeah, ins- yeah. Ins- and you ins- look ins- at it, comment? invariably, it's a rhetorical contrast, which makes right. it sound deeply profound. But as soon as you start thinking about it, you're just like, that's a a sack of crap actually and do you,
1: is, do you, does this stuff exist in normal conversation or is it fundamentally a feature of manufactured speech of pre-written speech
2: no it's actually the, the other way around okay. so authentic speech when you see people really speaking about things that they really really give a shit about they will yeah. use all of these devices absolutely authentically and naturally okay so there's you know you get in the back of a taxi you know and th- they start ranting about yeah, yeah, whatever's yeah, yeah. going on politically and you'll find them getting quite breathless yeah. you know never used to be blinking you know duh, duh, duh. sure and and like that so that's authentic communication when people who don't know the tricks they don't know the art of speech writing yeah. try to do it they write more like they're writing for the eye you know okay. so they don't yeah. put these things in that you would put for the the ear so what because, for instance, if you, anyone who's written a book, you write an article, you'd never use rhetorical repetition right? because it, it looks stupid on the page. It looks like Peppa Pig, you know, and, and any intelligent, discerning reader would say that this is rubbish, whereas when you hear a speaker do it, it just sounds really powerful. It's
1: interesting because I, I remember being told once about Churchill's rhetoric that what is interesting about it is, you know, we assume it's so much of its time, but actually, that mm. kind of quite purple language compared to the quite spare sort of voices in fiction in the 1930s, to the where people were writing literature, actually is very different from that time. That you know, it was a wholly different kind of register that he was using.
2: Yeah, yeah, um, well, well. Y- yeah, I just as soon as you said about the 1930s, I thought about Steinbeck actually because okay. Steinbeck was a great writer, but he was also a speech writer. Really? For who? Yeah, he helped out FDR, okay. and he also went on to help out Lyndon B. Johnson in yeah. um in in the 60s. So there's a straight crossover. I've never done an analysis of his literary style versus his re- rhetorical style, but would be interesting. Uh, to do, but Churchill. It must be remembered that you know we now like look back on him as being the greatest ever orator, yeah. um, and that's not what people said about him at the time. Really? Yeah. yeah. And so there's his di- there's um, a diary was written by his principal private secretary uh, Colville. 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 Yeah, so John Colville. Yeah. That's the one. I mean, God, he's got a life. His yeah. diary was a- so he worked for Churchill. Then he worked and for Am
1: I went, for the, I went to the RAF in between yeah.
2: yeah, and then he worked for the Queen. Okay, <laughs> so right. he he. I mean, you know, he did all the biggies of the 20th century, but he used to, he complained in his diaries about Churchill was just a big old windbag, you know, yeah. just get to the point, you know, all of this flowery language, people don't like it. And people at the time, you know, when you go back to what people were actually writing in their diaries yeah. at the time about Churchill in contemporaneous newspaper resorts, you got similar reactions. So there's a guy, a historian down at University of Exeter, Richard mm. Toy, wrote a brilliant book a few years ago called The Lion That Roared, okay. that kind of smashed down the myth of Churchill, this great orator. Right. And people were, what people were really saying at the time was, my God, did you hear Churchill on the radio Was this from Mass Observation
1: Archive? Yes,
2: and, it yeah. was, and a mix of other, yeah. a mix of other things. But the view of him was not so positive, and so people were saying he sounds drunk. You know, we often was. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But people kind of thought, well, hang on a sec. You know, we're at war here. We should have a, a sober. Um, so this explains a little bit more. Of course, we do, we love myths, don't we? So the myth of Churchill, great war leader, we all love now. But I think, it, and Richard yeah. Toy's argument was this: it wasn't quite like this at the time. And it's when you understand that that you can then see why it was that Attlee won that huge landslide. Sure. People had had talking enough of Churchill. Yeah. Yes, talking yeah, of yeah. landslides, it's, please don't.
1: It, no, but we're, <laughs> we're not, this is politics-free politics zone, except for <laughs> except for rhetoric. But you talk about these roots going back to classical antiquity, but it doesn't what a speech is fundamentally change with the advent of the microphone with the advent of you know broadcasting because presumably before that the number of people that an individual could speak to was pretty finite right what yeah how much you could carry how much you could project a voice yep that kind of thing you know that you can't you can't without a microphone talk to a stadium you can't talk to hundreds of thousands of people right
2: Yeah, indeed. And so this is the first development. So I think you go back to the 19th century, you think about Gladstone, the Midlothian address. Isn't it the
1: Gettysburg address as well? There were like 10 people there or something. I've heard that. Or it was oh, no, much more. L- well, you, you must know more about this than me, so... Yeah, there, there, were,
2: there, were, there, were, there were a lot of people there, but that was a speech that was lambasted in really? the newspapers the following day yeah. as well, because it just seemed so cursory because it was so short. Okay. Now, <laughs> now we're like, it was genius because it was so short, but that wasn't what people were saying at the time. Um, I think it was a little bit more than that. So I what's think the Glantier big, reference? Well, Gladstone's Midlothian address here in the 19th century, which is the same speech, but he had to deliver it in town halls. You know, He had yeah. to travel and go around the country and it was published. So you got printed form. I have one of the 19th century versions. I collect some of the old stuff. I okay. have it in my library at home. So that was the, the microphone, you're right. That was the first advance. But crying out loud... To just coming out of this election yeah. that's just been gone because when I started as a speech writer 20 years ago a lot of the time the speeches that I, I wrote they were dead as soon as they were they'd be delivered to the room yeah. and then the only way that that speech would live on would be if the, if you got a line in the press the following day which would be great you'd be like well we got one sentence in you know or if people then went out and said oh i just saw this speech by this politician boom 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 you know and they'd do it like that and that's just 20 years ago we wouldn't even put speeches on the web either in printed form or on youtube you know they would just die instantly and now you look at this election which has just happened all of the action is going on on social media you know where you're not leaving it to the BBC or CNN, if you're in the States, you know, or anyone else to decide which clip to show, you pick... The, the, the bit that you want. And that's where all of the money is is going these days. And mm-hmm. so if you look over the course of this campaign, like Jeremy Corbyn did a whole heap, th- it was his only way of re- reaching the public, mm-hmm. really, you know, in an unmediated form. And so he put a video out on his, his the launch of the campaign yeah. and it had something like four, five million views, you know. But Boris it- And Boris
1: Johnson did his walk and talk one. Yeah. And, and it, Rory Stewart and all of that. But, yeah. I w- but I wonder, given that, you know, before the microphone, you know, the, the, the spoken word is in many ways such an... It, as long as writing is such a kind of inefficient way of reaching large numbers of people, because it's, its reach is limited in things. Why is it so powerful? Is there something fundamentally human about the power of the spoken word, do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, and to, absolutely from experience, I mean, I know with politicians yeah. that they will sign off any letter okay. without barely reading it. You know, or sign off a report in their name with, you know, <laughs> after having a couple of bottles of champagne, they'll mm. just sign it off in, sure. in their, their box. But with a the speech, there's something about the fact that our words come out of our body. You yeah. own your your words that come out of your mouth in a way that they don't with anything else. Politicians can excuse it if they've written off a report or if it was something in a letter where it's stuff like you know. And I think of the George Bush, George Bush Senior, yeah. with his "Read my lips, no more taxes." You know that's Wh- which election all. was that in? Um, well, that was eighty-eight, mm-hmm. like Dukakis, yeah, pro- yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. Yeah. And then, know, he put, uh, exactly. and then he put yeah. up taxes, okay. you know, so that it's the thing. We own our words. You know, yeah. it comes out of our body. You have to believe it. If you don't believe it, then you're not going to deliver those words uh, credibly or authentically.
1: So can we talk about how you got into this game? Like how yeah. did you become a speechwriter?
2: Well, um, I mean, pretty much I'm a failed songwriter. Okay. <laughs> and so is I, that common? In
1: the in the speechwriter. Oh, the we're all failures. Yeah,
2: <laughs> absolutely. Failure is is the only common trait. We've got failed poets, failed journalists, failed okay. novelists, failed authors. But we're all happy doing doing what we do. So um yeah, I was first started writing songs when I was eleven. My first job when I was sixteen years old, I was a pianist in a okay. restaurant. Um, off Leicester Square and I I was sending demo tracks to... Were the, you playing your own stuff? Yeah, wow. some to, well sometimes you know, I but do. generally it was like Lady Moon of Red her. and say, saving all my love for you <laughs> and it, it awesome. was of an age! Awesome. <laughs> yeah, but the great American songbook and, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Misty and all of that stuff, which I love metaphor, you know <laughs> um, and so yeah, I w- was doing that and sending demo tapes, never got anywhere, then I got into politics and how? I,
1: well, how did that go? How did you go from like? Well, the, the restaurant. sat at your piano. The, and
2: <laughs> the restaurant that I was playing piano in got shut down. Okay. <laughs> Which I I was assured was nothing to do with my piano playing, <laughs> although I'm not quite convinced. I imagine convinced. this is a
1: kind of cabaret style yeah. establishment. With you sort of hunched over the ivories, like,
2: Yeah, not crooning. so much cabaret. I was very much in the background, so okay. they didn't want me grabbing too much attention. Right. If I'd have started a big sing along of bohemian rhapsody they'd have flung me out you okay. know okay. <laughs> as i did right. from time
0: to time
2: um but yeah the restaurant closed down and then i i joined the civil service okay. and to um, do what were you hired as a speechwriter no so i i went in and you know i went in as an administrative assistant okay. then worked my way up had you gone to university no i was expelled from school when i was 16 can you disclose what you did um, I did um, things that I continue to do as an adult, but no one complained <laughs> about. But it was, you know, um, okay. smoking, drinking, and telling people to roll right. off, basically okay. Okay. rhetorical, rhetorical um, tropes. Yeah, yeah, rhetorical tropes. Okay. Um, I went to university afterwards. Right. I grew up in quite a poor background, so I grew up council estate, single mum, benefits, sure. um, and so it was only after in London, nowhere in in London. Yeah, yeah. yeah so um, in West Kensington. Okay, um, and so. It was only afterwards when I was working at the Department for Education as a speechwriter, I'm writing speeches about social mobility, all of a sudden it occurred to me why my education had gone a bit wonky. Yeah. I started reading the reports about it, so I kind of rectified it then, went back to university in my early 30s and studied mass communications, okay. did a master's yeah. in in mass comms, and you know, all of a sudden the chip I'd had on my shoulder for not having completed education yeah, earlier yeah. on just disappeared because I realised that doing an MA was actually a piece of... So, how did
1: you wangle that? You're in an emergency job in the civil service. Yeah. How did you wangle speechwriting from that? G- gift to the Gap. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, so,
2: I, yeah, I probably, yeah, I mean, you could say sort I talked classic, my like, way.
1: Like post room to newsroom, like maneuver,
2: right? Yeah. And so I talked my way onto the Fast Stream program first, and then I, I became.
1: You talked mid- your way into the Fast Stream without a degree. That's quite impressive. Yeah.
2: So, me- yeah, and most of the people on the Fast Stream are oxbridge not just degrees so how did you manage that? i had a really supportive boss who saw the potential that i had and she's still a very very dear friend yeah tracy vegro absolutely lovely and um she yeah she was the one. so she went to oxford and she just saw a spark and she said you've got to go on this she gave me strong recommendations and then she was like now you've got to go and work in a minister's office because she'd been private secretary to douglas Hogg, tory um, and and then I, I got hooked up as a private secretary with Alan Johnson, which okay. was a match made in heaven because he also had been brought up a by a single mum yeah, yeah, in yeah. poverty in the same part of London as I had, and it, also, he was also a failed musician. Okay. So both of us just sat around saying, where did it all go
1: wrong? So what was the first <laughs> political speech you wrote?
2: Um, well, when I was working as Alan's private secretary, yeah. I used to help him out with his speeches and so i i would slip lines in i'd slip stories in i used to like go through books of quotations and i'd just make suggestions officials civil servants in the department would send very very boring draft speeches which would generally just long shopping lists of what government was doing so i'd give them some color and then i started getting into it and started reading more and more Um, stuff about it and then um,
1: reading classic speeches or reading
2: kind of reading loads and loads of speeches at first so just every single anthology of a speech that I could get and I was desperate to crack the code and literally I can remember going away on on holidays with anthologies and going through and like why is this working how is it working and I just couldn't understand it and I really wanted to understand it and then um, it was my wife's uncle Okay. who's um, a classicist, yeah. and he said, oh, y- what you need to do is read the classics. Right. <laughs> you know. And he put me on, he basically gave me a reading list and was like, okay. I've got to start with Aristotle's rhetoric and then you know, read um, Quintilian and Cicero and all of these. De- and he just gave me a reading
1: list. He put, he put me through the... Sure, th- okay. Yeah. So can we talk about the Postman speech? So we'll put this in the show notes. So this is a speech that Alan Johnson delivers to some fractious... Postal employers in two thousand, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, what I thought was interesting is I went to sort of like it's quite dry subject matter, but actually, mm. you know, it grabbed me and it sort of pulled me in. So can you talk mm. about, you know, take that to pieces? How did you write it? And what are the what are the tools that? You
2: well, write? i I d- didn't write that speech. Okay. At that, you know I helped. With that speech, I helped him put that okay. speech together. So at that stage, I was very much watching a master
1: at work. He wrote it himself, or yeah, had, pretty yeah.
2: much. Yeah. And I, I helped. I'd source stuff from the materials, yeah. but you know, it's it, when you have good speechwriter-client relationship, it's hard to remember who wrote which bits. Right. Okay. By the end of it, you know, and it because yeah. it kind of feels like it's all just one, one body of, of, of work really. Um. But this was this was pretty much how I learned to start off with, and it yeah. was just watching him because he had this extraordinary power and it was so inspiring to see him because you'd see him going in with a group of sub postmasters yeah. like you've got in in that speech or you could see him speak to the cbi pinstripes bankers whatever yeah. you know or to trade unionists or to a load of um old, old ladies and old men in the country who were worried about their local post office work and he just had this immediate the amazing ability to establish empathy and an affinity with the audience from and do it with humour and all of that. And I just used to watch him and, be, and see how he'd get audiences in the palm of his hands. Where had
1: he learnt that, do you think? Well, or, or can it be learned, how much of that is, is instinctual, is intrinsic?
2: Well, it can, I mean, it can totally be learned. I think Alan was an autodidact, mm. and so he, he learned a bit by reading. He was a big, big reader as well. But also because he'd been in the trade union movement, and so he learned it doing that. And what you find, actually, with politicians is that politicians do have, most of them, have jobs before they go into politics where they learn the art of speaking. So for Labour, it's always trade unionists and teachers. (laughs) You know, whereas for Tories, it's it's often... Yeah, it's barristers and business people, sales and, you know, stuff stuff like that. So with, like,
1: the typical political speech Mm. these days, how is it... Produced Is it we, we Say for a minister in, in the British government Like who who's writing it uh, there, Is there like a professional Speech writing core In the civil service Or are they spads Who are doing it Or Yeah like, And what's the back and forth And you know Do people Does it have to get signed off By the party apparatchiks, like lift the lid on that.
2: Yeah, sure. So, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm going to speak in general terms and yeah, largely course, about my, yeah. my experience. But the basic way it goes is that ev- every minister, yeah. pretty much now, apart from some very ju- junior ones, will have their own full-time speechwriter. Really? And they, they will work very closely. Usually, you'll be based in the private office, so yeah. you have instant, immediate access, or if not, not far from the private office. Um, there's... With that, I think I should separate between the kind of I, the bog standard speeches and the real biggies, you know, because we be like
1: party conference.
2: Well, n- n- not just the party conference at once, but you'll kind of uh, I, I think if you're a secretary of state, you'll probably give one big one a month okay. where all of the press will the... will be there. And you're announcing something you're doing something really significant. How long significant. Things? like what is the sweet spot length for a political speech or for a speech in general? um well um, my my view is always you need to exceed the audience's expectations okay. and it, when it, it's with some people you should be mercilessly <laughs> mercifully short you know if you're really crap at it just get off yeah, as quickly yeah. as you can however some people are amazing and just keep going you know like um it's this i mean it's the same it's as like chavez
1: Constance. wasn't it who would give like three-hour speeches and yeah. Things,
2: yeah yeah um castro so as as well. But Trump does this now, you know, so Trump will will do like a 90 minute rally, you know, and the audiences, he's got them in the palm of his hands the whole way. I hate to say this, you know, because I I would not like to be disparaging about Barack Obama Mm. compared to Donald Trump, but Barack Obama, people would drift off. After yeah. about sixteen or seventeen minutes, okay. generally, you know, and the, one of the reasons why uh, Trump is so compelling is because the amount of drama and conflicts that yeah, he throws yeah, into yeah. the thing, whereas with Obama, who it was kind of like everything was going to be just okay and everything sure. would be just fine,
1: you know. And, and how, s- how much of it then is delivery, and how much is content? How much is the words on the page, mm-hmm. and how much is so? For example, I just had a big magazine piece published in. Uh, outside of the magazine in the US, and they have a partnership with a company called Audem. Like, a, which, it, which, what it does is it gets professional actors to voice magazine stories. And I had listened; it was amazing. Like, it was because you know there are various sort of bots that will get a computer voice to read out text and stuff, but yeah. it's stilted. The delivery is wrong. Whereas this was like a kind of gravelly voiced dude, and there was all this back and forth because it was set in France. We had to get the French pronunciation correct and everything. Mm. But it was like, um. It was brilliant, and listening to it back, it like had a kind of drama that I felt that the written version you know, had, but was much elevated from that. But you know, in in your field, how much is it like the you know the words, and how much is it the person, the the skill of the person delivering
2: it? Yeah, well, there's a famous study on precisely this point, which was done by a guy called Morabian. It's often quoted back yeah. in the 1970s, where he analysed the relative importance of uh, physical communication. Vocal communication and verbal okay. communication. So, when physical there's is the a body com- language. Yeah, physical is the body language. Vocal is the tone of voice, and yeah. verbal is the actual words that they're saying. So, when the, and this is when there's a conflict. When there's a conflict between the two. Okay. And so, for instance, if if someone says, "I'm delighted." to see you you know but their feet are pointing away from from you then they want to get they want to get going you know and that's all the arms crossed yeah the arms crossed so that's that's point that he was looking at and what what he found was and i'm probably going to get the numbers a bit wrong here but it's round about it was about 60 percent was the physical um and and um i think maybe 25 percent was the tone of voice and the rest was
1: the words is that in one-on-one communication or is that in to a group.
2: I'm not sure, okay. but I don't see why it would be different if it was. You think a group it's not? It's not one-to-one. a fundamentally
1: different dynamics w- to a crowd. Or well,
2: it, it, it is, but I think in terms of working out whether or not someone means what they say, yeah. you know, then I don't see why there'd necessarily be a difference. And this is the thing: this is something that you see all the time, where people will di- speakers who don't believe what they're saying, whether it's politicians having to abide to a collectively agreed line, yeah. or business people having to say a strategy is good when they actually they think it's a crock of crap. Yeah. you know then their body language will send some sort of cue to the audience which will give away the fact that they're <laughs> they're lying and you see this all the time you see it all the time when speakers will almost wince well, so what are the tells
1: yeah what are the tells in that situation
2: i mean you know that people will screw their faces up and okay. will act, and words will get stuck in their throats you know i mean their body is rejecting yeah. their body is communicating what the truth is to, to people, so there was a fab example just in well, there were heaps of fab examples in this election, but I remember there was one where there was um i think it was the Lib dem chair was being interviewed on Newsnight, and she was being asked why. The Lib Dems were putting forward a candidate against Labour in Canterbury, which was a controversial thing. And she, obviously she was was defending a line, which she didn't agree with. And you could just see her looking more and more uncomfortable, her feet pointing towards. And by the end of it, she literally, she couldn't get the words out. (laughs) She was going like that and her body was just screaming. I don't, why did they make me say this crap? I don't believe it for a second. And so for uh, for a writer... A speechwriter, you're always trying to put into their mouth words that are going to come out of them with maximum conviction and sincerity, because if they are lying, their bodies will will give it away.
1: So So what is the power stance that you see at party conferences, you know, Ian Duncan Smith with his like chest open, the legs Sort of slightly spread. You know the pose. Yes,
2: posts? I I do. I mean, I think this is quite a controversial area. I I mean, I'm an expert on the words. I'm not yeah. an expert on the body language, but I know a bit about this. There's a famous there's a famous TED talk, by I think it's Amy Cuddy, okay. which it is it introduced that idea that if you lift your hands above your head before going to make a speech, you'll boost your serotonin levels, which will make you feel better about yourself. Then it's like giving yourself a dose of Prozac before right. you go out there. Okay. So that makes you feel good. That's kind of as uh, I think that's the essence of what she says. But I think that she's had some critics. There are people right. that question the veracity of the science behind it. But but nevertheless, this is a TED Talk that has had millions of views and people talk about it and abide by it. And so it's... Um, it, 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 yeah so, i mean if it if it works for you there are many people yeah. who swear it works then maybe it's a placebo <laughs> i don't know but whatever works for a speaker is good how did
1: your government career then continue you were in government until 2007
2: yes that's correct yeah so um so After being Alan Johnson's private secretary, I then got a job writing speeches for Patricia Hewitt when she was Secretary of State for Trade and Industry and Minister for Women and Equality. Um, And that was great fun because she was a brilliant speechwriter, actually. She Mm. had been Neil Kinnock's speechwriter back in the mid 80s and famously helped him with his militant tendency speech um, back then. And so she knew what a lot of the devices like rule of three contrast and stuff yeah. so she was she was great to work with I loved working with Patricia she was great fun and then when Alan Johnson got bought into the cabinet by Tony Blair um, Alan said would you like to come and join well because we always thought of it as being like music literally yeah. he called me up and said do you want to get the old band back together okay <laughs> and I was uh, keyboard at the ready boss you right. know and so then i start with alan and work with him at department for trade and industry as was and then we moved to education which was brilliant you know when blair was prime minister education 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 yeah. happy days and then we went on to health after gordon brown had become prime minister when um it was kind of like the dark clouds had set over <laughs> <And> <laughs> over whitehall project, yeah. yeah and so i was like oh, I've, I've had enough of this you know it was a, a bit Miserable uh, for me after Gordon Brown had become prime minister, the you know the energy had gone out of government. I felt that Blair was a real leader, gave real energy within government. I didn't think Gordon Brown did that. And um, literally, I remember handing in my notice, sticking two hundred quid on David Cameron to be the next prime minister okay. <laughs> at five to two odds. Wow! Um, okay, so
1: you yeah, cleared, you cleared up on that one.
2: Yeah, I did. I did all right on that. And then um, I did, yeah, not on all my bets. I just lost some money last night, but that's another story. And then I left. Left and set up my business.
0: This episode of Always Take Notes is supported by Clean Prose, London's first co-working space designed specifically for writers.
1: Based over three stories in Shoreditch in the east of the city, Clean Prose's mission is to provide writers of all stripes, from novelists to playwrights, with a space and a community designed especially for them.
0: To foster strong connections, Clean Prose offers a professional network that many writers miss when they work alone at home, at a library or in a noisy cafe.
1: The ground floor is an event space, offering workshops, talks from experts and book launches.
0: The first floor is an open-plan common room. It is the space for writers to connect, collaborate, drink coffee and develop their professional networks within the publishing, TV, film and other creative industries.
1: The second floor is a totally quiet space in which to concentrate and write, with private desks, lockers and an extensive book collection.
0: To find out more, go to cleanprose.co.uk. Always take notes, listeners, are eligible for a five-day pass to CleanProse. To redeem this offer, please email write at cleanprose.co.uk with the subject line ATN-Welcome5.
1: And just on on the government thing, how are speechwriters perceived within the wider civil service? Because compared to, I don't know, you know, doing something really fucking dry. Like it sounds like quite a fun and interesting job. And yeah, start, you've got a lot of contact with senior people and things. Are they are they sort of respected or are they regarded as like having pulled something very smart out of the bag to have done that? Or? Yeah.
2: As as with so many professions, yeah. if you're doing it well, <laughs> yeah. you're treated with respect. Okay. If you're you're not, you're out instantly. Right. Yeah. And so I think it's probably. Without exception, it's probably the most vulnerable post really? when there's a reshuffle or change of government. People will stick with their heads of comms, their principal private secretaries, you know, but the speechwriter, it really requires that personal connection. And if it's not working, boom you 're just out so as long as you 're keeping the customer satisfied, yeah. then the civil service will will, will I, I always i still have great relations with the senior civil servants in all of the departments that yeah. I, I i worked with, and like I completely admired what they did hugely admired their intellects, but equally they liked the way that i I could just step back from an issue yeah. and just give it that re- the really broad brush strokes the metaphor that's stuck in my mind that a speechwriter in Whitehall said to me was that like when I first started was like you've got to move imagine you've walked out of your department out of Whitehall you've gone to the top of Primrose Hill mm. and then you're looking back over London you see your department is this tiny little you know chimney yeah. <laughs> in the background and then that's the picture
1: you want to create. So how did setting up your own business work? How did you go about building up a client book and how did that kind of commercial work compare to having done it in government?
2: Well, I mean, it was extraordinarily easy, actually, and also extraordinarily satisfying. Okay. Um, And so to the first point i when i when i made the decision to leave and it was you know not a decision i took lightly my wife was pregnant with her Mm -hmm. first baby um at the time so she said she said well if you think it's a good idea great you know but write for me a business plan setting out how this is going to work so i did write out for her a business plan i thought there's a gap in the market here Mm -hmm. you know that where in comms there's all sorts of other specialisms you know guerrilla advertising viral marketing all of this kind of stuff there don't seem to be any specialist speech writers so i thought. A gap here, and uh, I had all of these plans how to market the business, putting ads in the back of The Economist, Mm -hmm. going to networking events, and all of that. And as it happens, pretty much as soon as I walked out, the phone was ringing, and it's not stops, really, you know. And and I mean, I'm turning work away literally literally every single day and um the and it's good stuff that I do and it's so satisfying because when you're writing speeches um in government you're always constrained by what the line is yeah. you know um and so you can be creative but within very narrow parameters really if yeah. any if any politician in, in in the conservatives has said anything other than get brexit done mm. <laughs> over the last few weeks they'd have been shot by you
1: Dom, know by yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah.
2: absolutely um Whereas in business, it's completely different. And there was just such massive scope for creativity. And whereas within uh, the civil service, there's an inherent scepticism and, you know, just risk, they're risk averse. Whereas in business, you could say, oh, I think we should frame it like this. Let's start off with a clip from Gladiator or Star Wars, you know, something like that. And they'd go brilliant. They were just instant. So you could be really creative. And I was just like, wow, this is fab. So who
1: were your? You've written for like Unilever, for other big. Which other big corporations have you done?
2: uh, Pretty, I mean heaps, like like dozens. And Um, these are for the CEOs, for the people. Yes, yeah. Yeah, So Intercontinental Hotels. Okay. Um, I've done um an incredible amount for who else? um, Nest Nestle, Rio Tinto, Um Serco. Oh my goodness. Cadbury, that okay. was one of the first ones that I did. So when Cadbury was being taken over by um, Kraft, um, all sorts, yeah.
1: all, all sorts. And so a rule of the podcast is we always talk about money and how it relates to people's writing lives. Mm. Like, how is a speech priced? Yeah, you know, do you charge by the day, by the hour, by the word? Like, what is the what is the way it works?
2: Well, um, this was something I thought about when I was setting up my business. Yeah. So. I, I had two models, basically, which is, like, I can charge by the hour or yeah. I can charge by
1: the word. And one of the first speeches that you I You never I thought did. of doing, like, just a single project fee? of Like, this is what a Simon Lancaster speech costs?
2: Well, that was the per word, per the word. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So I remember saying um, to... Because so if you go
1: by the word, sure, the incentive is like a Castro-esque three-hour job every time, right?
2: Well, they'd tell you what the slot was, oh, right. okay. so you couldn't okay, you sure. couldn't do that. You You'd have missed the brief. But you know, for instance, so I think I think um, the first the first one that I quoted was for a two thousand word speech, and I thought, well, let's just say a pound a word. And what
1: what is the assumption for time? I, mm. I know we were talking about our producer actually for something about the podcast, but she said it was like three words a second was the broadcast assumption for. Does that figure with what you do? Presumably, or is it slower? Oh my though? God, that's quick.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that's 180 words a minute. Yeah. But yeah. No, that's um, that's that's a broadcaster who's taking drugs. Okay. Yeah. Um, most most orators are, are between ni- 90 yeah. and 120. That's the average. So we get some on, exceptions. Let me, let me
1: so a 2,000 <laughs> word speech then is going to be 20 minutes.
2: A bit. Well, the, yeah. Yeah, that's if it's 100. Most most spe- 100 would be a really slow... That would be like a Barack Obama would be 90 okay. to 100. Most people would be about 120, 130. What's optimal, do you think? It depends on the speaker. You know, if they, it depends how, uh, what effect they're trying to achieve. If you want a high energy effect, you want to be speaking quickly. Yeah. If you want more gravitas, you want to be going more slowly. And so as a contrast um for your listeners like barack obama would clock in at around about 90 words a minute okay. ken robinson's ted talk which is the most watched ted talk he clocks in at about 160 words a minute right john burko the annoying speaker clocked in at 60 words a minute so he was infuriatingly slow yeah. when it when he spoke you know so it depends what effect you're trying to achieve what effect is is appropriate to the speaker so back so you you pictured a at a pound a
1: word initially?
2: Well, I did that once. Okay. And I never did it again because, because it, it ended up, we, we went round and round in circles like, oh, and the client was very indecisive, very vague. And would, she she kept changing her minds about how she wanted to pitch the so speech. So they were like rounds of edits, basically. Yeah. And it, we got to like draft 87. Okay. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I'm yeah. killing myself here. Right. And so I, I, I thought, well, what I've got to do, I've got to factor in an incentive for the client to get it over with quickly okay. basically and so what I, I quote now is um, as a rule of thumb it takes an hour of my time to produce a minute of final text um, and so for a 20 minute speech it's going to take me 20 hours and that's from start to finish right that includes uh, edits right that would include edits conception yeah, yeah. brainstorms meetings yeah, phone yeah. calls yeah. you know a bit of ping pong back and forth of the draft okay. and uh, I yeah, I've been doing that. That has been my, my model, which I, I've stuck with for, yeah, 13. And what's your rate? 13 years now. Um, my, my rate is 250 an okay. hour.
1: Okay, so for a job, like for a speech, 20 hours work, you're looking at about 5,000 for pounds for a speech. Yep. Yeah. And you've yep. got more work than you can handle. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. But there aren't many people that can, I should emphasize, there aren't many people that can write speeches for someone else very well. So this is something where it is. Like the kind of ventriloquy
1: of it. Yeah,
2: exactly. Capturing someone else's voice authentically, you know. And so so this is something where I know there's a lot of people who are brilliant writers. And I mean, some of the best known columnists, you know, in the country that have put their hand to this and they can't do it because their own voice is so strong. Yeah. You know, or they've they've written loads of books. They simply can't. They're so used to writing and using their own words, they can't then think. Well, how do I? How do I? So, what's this the process? Voice? Say,
1: I am the boss of some huge corporation. Mm-hmm. I call you. I've got to go and talk to my recalcitrant shareholders in 2 weeks. I need a like barnstormer. What what goes on? How do we talk? What do you how do you get the ideas? Yeah.
2: It's it's different with everyone and yeah. so some of my clients the ideal scenario for me is that we'll go in and we'll bounce ideas around and we'll be creative. With the
1: top guy or with his team?
2: With the, it it depends. It ideally you're you're in there you're with the top guy. Yeah. You know, or gal. That's a, yeah, yeah. you know Sorry, quite yeah, yeah. a few. Um, now but um, there's that's the ideal scenario Um, but I you've got to be realistic you work with what you can work with (laughs) you know and sometimes you, you don't have that level of access what really really works for me is if when I'm first introduced to a client if I get just two hours with them then and an opportunity to really get into them and explore them, do some creative work with them, then I can keep writing speeches on the back of that two-hour meeting for like two, three years, really? where we can just have the odd phone call here and there, direct emails here and there, and I'll get where
1: they're coming from. And how does the editing work? How much back and forth is there after that? Um, and do they push back? Do they sometimes say, we don't want to do that? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: But the way that, so the way I work the, the process is, is, is bit by bit. Okay. So, first, I'll get them to sign off the concept, yeah. the theme of the speech, the overall argument of the speech. If you could articulate the whole of the speech in 12 words or less, what would it be? Okay. And getting them to sign up to that is often the trickiest part. Yeah. And that's where you can go back and forth, round and round in circles. Once you've cracked that and you've got a good theme, then let's get it structured. And yeah. there are off-the-shelf structures that you can use um, for speeches, templates, different what ones that you know use? work. Is
1: there special software for it? No. Okay.
2: But just different the- theories that are said, some of which are based in classical rhetoric and some Should you give which- a couple of examples? Um, oh, my goodness. So the, the, there's um, one in um, the big book on um, De Herenium, is it, where it sets out… Um, where it's not clear who wrote it, actually, but where it's exposition of the theme, that like the introduction, and then you have a narrative history. So that's point one. Then you have point two, a narrative history. Yeah. And then you set, have step three, which is divisio, You set out the questions okay. which um, are facing you today. Then you have point four, your evidence in support, your key arguments. Step five, refutation. And step six is your peroration, your climax. Okay. So for a kind of argumentative speech, that yeah. works a frigging treat, okay. you know. Um, and many political speeches will just follow that, that structure. Do
1: you coach delivery as well? No.
2: Okay. No, there are, I mean, That's you know. That's not your job. It's not my job. There's other people that have been to drama school, have studied that, who yeah. know how to breathe properly. You know, I, I'm a I'm word, wordy Sorry, I guy. cut
1: I cut you off when you were saying so that's one structure. Are there other?
2: Yeah. yeah. So the the other one that works really really well um, is 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 one that was devised by uh, Marshall Gantz at Harvard. Okay. Where I'm going to summarize it, but it's basically um, it's a circular structure, and it comprises three parts. The first part is my story. Okay. The second part is our story, and the third part is is. Where are we now? What next? Okay. Basically. And that's a structure that, for the more emotional speech, the more campaigny type speech, building a movement yeah. works a treat. You know, because yeah. you, you're my story, you ap- achieve empathy with the audience. You then kind of attach your own story to the collective story, our story, and then you attach that to whatever
1: it is that concerns you in the present. Do you ever work in languages other than English via translators? I have done. Yeah. Yeah.
2: What's that? Um, well, I was told it was okay. Which language? <laughs> I, oh my god, that was a, a speech which I wrote in English, that was then translated into French okay. and delivered in Belgium um, in French. Yeah, yeah, not in French. Um, yeah, and then and then was translated back into English and. Pumped out as in the English headlines, so that was okay. that was a bit weird. I was told it worked, whether or not it did on <laughs> <laughs> barricades. Yeah. Can we
1: talk about these specific examples you sent over? So, as with mm. anyone on the show, we asked for some you know to send mm. examples over, and yours were quite an esoteric mix. So we had Oprah Winfrey, we had Greta Thunberg, Thunberg, mm. and Trump. So we can talk about that opera speech. So it's a Golden Globes yes. speech, yeah. Um, and you were talking about this is like the storytelling. Yeah. Technique. We'll put a link in the show notes so listeners can see it. Yeah. But what? Yeah, what's she
2: doing there? So she's she's following that my story, our story, and then what next? Okay. Structure um, in there. Whether it was intuitive or whether it was constructed deliberately. I have no idea. I don't know whether she wrote it herself or whether she had help with that. With but um, the thing that I, I love about this, that speech is, I mean, I regard that as being the, one of the best speeches I've seen in the last 20 years. Really? You're just absolutely, it's irresistible. Whereas with Barack Obama, you could drift off Oprah Winfrey the way that she Tells story after story, and it just all weaves together into a seamless narrative. In that speech, I just think is brilliant. You don't, you don't, you can't turn off for a word, you know. And this. I thought it was
1: interesting to watch the audience with that. Yes, someone stands up, other people stand up. That's looked to me like a sort of, and I I juxtaposed it with the Trump speech you sent where Trump then lambasts the Oscars. Did you, I don't know if you saw this, but the, there's Trump saying the Oscars were good, You know, this is like the Oscars till they went political and everything was ruined and the <laughs> ratings went down. Yeah, And, and you'd sent this along with like a very politicized like peak of sort of Me Too, Time's Up hmm. uh, speech from that side. I was just going to ask, it's a bit of a tangent, but do you ever have situations where you've got to write two speeches, like the resignation speech and the triumph speech, and only one of them gets used, you know, in that... That's the classic political thing, right? Yes. Uh, have you have you done, had experience of that? Yes. Can you tell anything more? No.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm afraid not. But yeah, precisely. You need to be prepared for all scenarios. Um, what when, happens to the one that doesn't get used? It gets burnt. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I still have... A few. Still got what Gordon, Gordon, Gordon Brown's termed. electoral drive yeah. speech. And like that. <laughs> no, 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 nothing to do with it with Brown. But absolutely, you need to, you know, you've got to be ready to respond quickly. So, like in in the election that's just been, all of the leaders' teams yeah. will have had drafts. Ready to go in event of a landslide, in event of a hung parliament, in event of a, a big defeat, because what, what a, because all of the members of the team will be so emotionally whacked yeah. when the news comes in, they they won't be able to do anything, yeah. you know, and so you just need to have thought it through rationally b- beforehand. What's the quickest you've
1: ever had to write a speech? Uh,
2: oh God, I mean, um, I the. most important speech i remember there was one time when i was writing for alan johnson when he was secretary of state for health and there was one time when um we had the news on the outbreak of was it c difficile in hospitals in maidstone and kent okay yeah the superbug yeah the superbug and there was a front page of the daily mail that day and the speaker told Alan Johnson he had to come over to the House of Commons to make a statement on this. We'd known in private office, know nothing about this before we read about it in the Daily Mail. Mm. And then he's got to stand on his feet in the House of Commons and deliver a statement which has to be, is on the record, obviously, Mm -hmm. um, and which needs to be absolutely correct. So that was, and it was the top news story you know, so is there like, you and know, there were lives at stake. Yeah. You know, people had been killed. Uh, the information hadn't. Trans- it is works there in, its way in up the government department. or in
1: corporations like, can you produce a, a sort of speech that you know is ready if there's a plane crash, if there's a natural disaster when people are killed? Like, when you know, when the prime minister has to appear yeah. solemn-faced after a catastrophe, yeah. are those speeches pre-written and then like the details parachuted in?
2: Well, this is something they're not. But
1: I think, oh my God, you know, yeah, put this in the Prime Minister's
2: box. Just in case there's a terrorist attack tomorrow, can you just sign this one off, please? You know, um, but I mean, there you do act quickly. And again, there's an off the shelf structure for speeches, for crisis. Which is what? Rhetoric. Oh my God, I haven't got my notes on me, but there is a a four step structure. Let me think. I think it starts. It starts with a statement of facts. Okay. What is known. And then it starts... Then step two, you talk about the perceived enemy. Okay. And then three, you have an appeal to values which unite. And then four... Is, is next steps. I might have got that That's a little spooki- bit muddled. familiar spookily familiar. Yeah, it sounds yeah, yeah, to, and, yeah. and you know, whether or not this is something that is just kind of embedded in our subconsciouses because we've all, all, we're all used it's to like hearing It's primal, these.
1: it's an archetype. Yeah.
2: yeah. And so we, ju- we just accept it. So whether or not people are deliberately writing to that structure or they just instinctively write to that structure, I don't know. But there is, there is
1: stuff which is is, yeah, yeah. is off break, the shelf, glass and bring out. Yeah, we're running up against our time limit, but I wanted to talk briefly about the other two speeches. So Greta, is it Thunberg that? Uh, well, I call her Thunberg. Thunberg, You're, I'm sure you. You, you say did. tomato, I say tomato. Yeah, yeah. So this speech you sent. So this is her at at Davos. Mm. Um, I also wanted to ask you know, do you encourage people to speak without notes? What's the policy yes. on that? Always. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and that and that is in politics is done with a prompter, or do they actually mm. have to know it by heart?
2: Well, the I mean, uh, most of the... There are always exceptions, you see. I should always be careful in any side. <laughs> just, just saying that they're, they're, there's an absolute root. I th- th- the rule. The, I think that when people are speaking without notes, they show that they know their stuff. They show yeah. that they care about their words. They own their words far more than... You know, when people are reading from a script, they invariably go
1: into robot mode. But isn't the risk that they're going to deviate off your? character Yeah,
2: and there is. is, and that happens... Uh, as well you know unless you're a complete gimp you know you're not gonna you're not gonna completely ruin your speech and there's only one example i can think of someone who did that which is um, ed Miliband, where he did a speech at party conference i think it was 2015 or 2014 and um he he tried to deliver a one-hour speech from memory and he ended up missing i think it was the deficits and immigration
1: what what is best practice for that is it to have like cue cards with a few things on yeah
2: i mean whatever works whatever works different people different some people like mind maps some people you know just a few random notes on on words you know to to work their their way through the different people will remember that things in, in different ways one of the most impressive people uh politicians uh that i've ever heard of with this is ed balls okay who um just had such an extraordinary memory, and if you've ever met him, spoken to him, or heard him speak, you just know he's phenomenally intelligent. And he liked um, delivering his speeches from memory. Okay. Um, he's has suffered a stutter, so like since right. he was a child. So this was his kind of, you know, his, his mechanism for dealing with it. Apparently, he's just like, incredibly quick, so you could give him like a twenty-minute speech um, to learn. An hour later, boom! You know, and you get like ninety-eight percent, ninety. So people that you know can, can do it. If you know your stuff, you should be able to do it anyway. If you're a CEO of a company, you, you'll have kind of like little lines that yeah. you can just weave together. And
1: so on those those two final speeches, the Greta speech. What's going on there? Then she's at Davos. She's reading from notes, right? Yeah. Yeah, what what are the tropes that this is the house on our house on fire Mm. speech, which again we'll put in the notes. Yeah, what rhetorically what is being done? Well, the thing I want to highlight about that is is the metaphor
2: really. So the the idea of the the planet as a home Mm. and our home is on fire. You know which I don't know if but you house saw. not
1: home is like, the term she uses, right? Interesting. She doesn't say our home is on fire. She says our, our house, house is, which ha- is more powerful. Is I think. Yeah, it's more
2: vi- visual. Yeah. And so the, you see the Extinction Rebellion march that you yeah. you had through um, through Whitehall the other week, and almost all of the signs that we were, were being held up were metaphors. Okay. You know, and this is the way we communicate about some of the biggest issues of our time. So there were a number of people who were holding above their heads cardboard box houses that they are yeah. made with flames coming out of them. So okay. this is a message that has got through. Some of the others that metaphors that people are using were like, you know, you fossils fucked our planet. Yeah. People were kept walking around with signs saying that and respect our mother, Mother Earth. Right. You know, so d- different metaphors. And that's what I think was so admirable about that speech, just right. the way that she coined this idea of the the planet as a home, and then of course that f- it follows from there. We're a family sharing that home together, so we all need to take some responsibility. Brilliant, persuasive. Do you have any idea, like both with
1: the opera one and that one, whether they wrote it themselves or whether they were pre-prepared? Like, do you know what the backstory was behind the language?
2: Don't I don't. I don't. But I mean, um, my 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 hunch is that they were both prepared for. They had some help with both of them because they're just too brilliant. Yeah. You know. Um, I mean, that I don't that's my hunch I don't know
1: and finally Trump what you know you sent over a video of a Trump run as well what's going on rhetorically
2: well I think that Trump and Oprah despite being completely different ends of the political spectrum the thing that they have in common is that they both learnt their trade in the world of entertainment right you know, and and so opera, obviously, and on you know. TV. Really. Yeah, Trump with the Apprentice, he knows how to grab people's attention. He knows that sense of drama, and so I think what you what you get him, what you get with Trump is that he follows more. If you read Robert McKee's book, story.
1: No. Uh No, but I, I get his emails and stuff. Oh, that,
2: yeah. you know, I mean, it's brilliant. He has this thing about a good story. The He defines a good story as being a protagonist fighting the forces of antagonism in order to each reach the object of their desire right. and he puts stories that's it for him and so that's what trump's plan you know it's good story so he establishes himself as the protagonist protagonist he's a symbol for USA he always wears the colors of yeah. the flag he comes on stage, people are chanting, USA, USA, not Donald Trump, he is the symbol of America. And then almost instantly, as soon as he starts the speech, he's calling out enemies. Yeah. You have force of antagonism instantly. So calls we've got CNN over at the back there fake news you see the lies they were telling me about me this morning and straight away he's calling out an enemy and it just Lobbyers, grabs your attention the swamp,
1: all of
2: that. Yeah, yeah and then the democrats and you know he just yeah he he goes he just has a long list of enemies and it makes it so <laughs> who, who captivating is, who is
1: writing that i don't know i i mean he will have a,
2: a team um, but I don't, I don't know I don't know who's, who's, who his writer is OK
1: well look Simon thank you we're, we're banging against time so we have to call, bring this to an end fascinating as it is um, thank you for being such a great guest and Always Take Notes and wishing you all the best with your work going forward thank you Simon great to be here
0: hello it's us again Simon you did this interview solo what are your main takeaways
1: it was very interesting because it was something that I knew almost nothing about. So uh, we recommended to get him on by a friend of mine who'd um, heard him talk at a workshop at his place of work. And uh, it was fascinating. I was like a, like a complete student being schooled in how you write speeches. I thought the point that, you know, this hasn't really changed since... Cicero. The, yeah, since yeah. Cicero, since the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans was really fascinating. So I thought he was just an impressive guy. Like he hadn't, you know come from a background where you know this was this was sort of something that seemed possible he walked his way in through the lower echelons of the civil service and and made it work and fitted I suppose with our aimed mission to have writers of all stripes.
0: Tempted to moonlight in the speech writing world?
1: I don't know actually I think it must be hard I think it must be easy to do badly hard to do well. Definitely. Yeah.
0: And there's lots of politicians who deliver terrible speeches.
1: Yeah, and it, it, I think the delivery is key. And there's a whole other bunch of people who coach with that as well. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I very much enjoyed it as an episode. Anyway, how are you, Rachel?
0: Yes, fine. In the midst of the coronavirus panic, which is fun.
1: Yes, we are, we've just recorded another interview for the show and we're here on the last day that the Economist offices are open,
0: in fact. Fun times for indefinite... Yeah, indefinite
1: period of Definitely. time hopefully when you when you listen to this there'll be some more clarity um, so we've also decided to ask you gentle listeners uh, for money in a more open and direct way so the podcast has and has for a little while had a crowdfunder on Patreon you can find it at patreon.com slash always take notes and if you support the show Rachel what can you hope to receive
0: you can get an eclectic and wonderful bunch of pictures from friends of the podcast and some of the hosts um full of wonderful tips and for different publications so a good insight into how you can be crafting pitches in different ways and still be successful
1: these we should say for those not familiar with the nomenclature are story pitches. so people uh things that people send to editors to try and get pieces commissioned but yeah if you support us it means a great deal it lets us pay our producers buy a better kit all that kind of thing and so we would urge and encourage you to do so Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acum.
0: And me, Rachel Lloyd.
1: Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. Our social media is by Owen Redahan. And our score is by Jess Danheiser.
0: If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. Please leave a review on iTunes if you enjoyed it. If you don't, don't tell anyone. And please find us on Patreon.
1: Many thanks. Goodbye.